Hello and welcome to Overdrive where we mull over issues to do with cars and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we take a look at the latest news stories including Rolls-Royce to skip hybrids and go straight to electric vehicles. We have a chat with Brian and Errol about an exhibition that tracks the evolution of the motor car through photography, revealing the glamour and excitement of a lost era. And we look at a few lighter subjects, including flying cars and Tesla trucks. Have a question or a comment? Send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. Now, to begin the program, let's have the news. According to an auto car report out of the UK, Rolls-Royce will not build any hybrid vehicles. But while the company is known for luxury at any cost, it is still pursuing technology that will reduce local pollution. It will skip the middle ground of hybrid vehicles and will eventually go straight to electric vehicles. The company, started in 1904 by Charles Stuart Rolls and Frederick Henry Royce, has not been one for revolutionary developments, but rather for building cars with very high-quality engineering standards and, of course, luxury. Rolls-Royce looked at electric cars in 2011 with an electric Phantom concept, but felt the range and infrastructure was not good enough at the time. Rolls-Royce is not in a hurry and will only move to the more modern platform when technology has progressed sufficiently so as not to compromise the performance standards they expect. Rolls-Royce is owned by BMW and will make use of their technological expertise. Green Car Reports notes that Volkswagen intends to be very aggressive when tackling the electric vehicle market. They have a golf-sized electric concept car called the ID, which was first shown at the 2016 Paris Motor Show. They are predicting that the starting price in US dollars will be seven dollars to $8,000 lower than that of a Tesla Model 3, which has a starting price of $35,000. And this does not take into account any government incentives. In 1990, Honda started selling its most exotic sports car to date, the transversely mounted mid-engine 3-litre V6 NSX. It was the nearest thing to a Ferrari that Japan had ever produced in its looks and performance. In 1999, they added a cheaper, smaller two-door sports car, the S2000. It was more conventional with a two-litre four-cylinder engine up the front, but it would rev out to an incredible 9,000 revs per minute. At this revolution limit, a piston is going up and down 150 times a second. It finished production in 2003 and the last NSX came out two years later in 2005. Honda then appeared to lose its edge as a car company that produced advanced engineering products. In 2016, however, Honda again started selling an NSX under its luxury brand Acura. Now there are reports of a new mid-engine sports car from Honda which would fit in as a baby NSX or an upmarket S2000. Details are very sketchy, but it's likely to have a turbocharged engine supplemented with electric power. 
The Bentley Bentayga SUV has done the company proud with its sales, despite, or perhaps because of, its hefty starting price and optional extras, including a special clock that costs an additional $300,000. Now, Range Rover is eyeing that market segment. In Australia, the Bentley SUV starts at a list price of $335,000 and can go up to $427,300, plus on-road costs and, of course, plus options. The top of the range, Range Rover, is more than the base model Bentley and at nearly $350,000, it's not that far behind the top Bentayga, although the options list may be more restrained. Range Rover would be betting on their extensive history of large four-wheel drives to confidently attack the high-roller market. Mercedes has set the date for entering the ute market. The new X-Class ute will be launched in Europe in 2017, with Australia and South Africa to follow early in 2018, and then Argentina and Brazil at the beginning of 2019. There are three design and equipment variants to choose from, as well as four or six-cylinder engines, rear-wheel drive and engageable or permanent all-wheel drive, a six-speed manual transmission or a seven-speed automatic gearbox. Mercedes says the X-Class has been specifically developed with the changing requirements of the ute market in mind. It will come with traditional ladder-type frame, rear multi-link solid axle, front independent wheel suspension and coil springs on both axles. Very detailed maps are not just a nice way to help you navigate. Many believe that they are an essential feature of making autonomous vehicles work as accurately as they have to to, to keep within the traffic lane and to be able to turn around corners. There is big money to be made in perfecting information to be compiled in this way and companies like Google are at the forefront of this development. Now three young entrepreneurs, two of whom were engineers who once worked for Tesla, have started a company, LVL5, to generate these maps from data that is continually being collected by Uber and Lyft rideshare vehicles. They pay the drivers to mount a phone in their cars that collects the data. And that has been the news. And we are again joined by Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. And Errol Smith. G'day, Errol. G'day, David. G'day, Brian. Now, there's an exhibition that tracks the evolution of the motor car through photography, and it reveals the glamour and the excitement of what might be, well, lost eras. Now, this has been a great uh, difficulty to me because I have just been searching through and loving the look at some of the glorious old photos. But you saw the traditional ones, uh, Jacques-Henri Latigue. Uh, he had one of the most famous ones of that car from the racetrack in 1906, I think it was, where he panned with the car and it made the wheel look as though it was going so fast that it had become almost distorted. Uh, I guess that is a very iconic picture of it, but I've got to say... Uh, that was only just so much of it. There is just so much more that I think is absolutely wonderful. Gentlemen, have you seen any of the photos? Oh, I've looked at a couple of them. They're wonderful. I, I love that oval wheels. I love the the sense of speed. And uh, also, 
many of the photos you you certainly get a sense of um uh kind of adventure and invention these are new things and that the the combination of the the new technology of photographs the new technology of motor cars they were inventing in a sense the ability to take these shots at such high speeds which created what such wonderful images i think i i think they're glorious the part i love is that that famous photo as you meant with that distorted wheel that looks like it's sort of lurching forward as it spins, mm. has created, has, it's influenced so many cartoons and comics and things <laughs> to represent yes. speed with that same image of the, the distorted wheel. I, I've seen a couple of news reports about it. You, uh, right, and I do like that photo. I love your point, Errol, that about how it has reflected on culture, both reflecting what culture is but also affecting what it became. And I think that is really thing. There's some fantastic work done in the news service CNN. Apparently, they do other things other than wrestle Donald Trump, which is in their style section, which has an autos part of it. And they look at this exhibition in more detail, including a, a guy by the a, a lady by the name of Jacqueline Hassink, who went around photographing all the women on display, if you pardon the expression, at car shows. I got fascinated by that a little while ago, too, that not just from the sex uh, aspect of it, but rather that they were dressing them in a reflection of the time when business became the hard fact. You know, the Ford exhibition had these ladies dressed in pinstripe suits. When four-wheel driving then became big SUVs to be very boastful about, the ladies were dressed in flowing gowns, you know, around uh, an SUV. And, you know, to my mind, was very, very reflective. And this exhibition has that those um, things that are both the, from the ugly side of it to the, uh, the fashion side of it to a whole range of things. And I just love that. I just love that completely. Fascinating, though. Uh, the other, see, the point that really that hits home to me is the movie American Graffiti. It's not still pictures. But what an incredible reflection that was but then an impact you you remember they had that little bright yellow 32 ford coupe Mm. it was driven by the character kirk henderson which of course was oh richard dreyfus no he wasn't a coupe sorry you know he was someone else but the point i'm making is that that almost totally revived the interest in the sort of hot rods Oh, hot rods, yes. Mm. And uh, that other iconic images associated with drive-in theatres, aren't yes. they? And drive-in food sales, like fast food oh. joints where they put a tray alongside the, the car or in the in the drive-in theatres. Now, these are things that are gone now, aren't they? I mean, you just yes. don't really see them anymore. Yet, yet they are images that immediately transport you to an era and to a, a sensation where, where the private car was an extension of your life, not just a, a mode of transport. Mm. Happy days and all that, yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Happy. Again, that probably reflects our sort of uh, age and what have you. Some of the photos there were much more serious. There's an, air, an, an aerial photograph, not, not way up in the air, just above a car, almost taken by a drone, I suppose, with, what is it, two, four, six, seven guys in the back of a ute. Uh, and it's called... Probably on the way to work or somewhere. Yeah, yeah, the carpool. 
series was what it was and 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 it does it does reflect the time both in terms of wonderful images or even painful images or just harsh realities that's what i really love about it and it's not just pictures of e-type jaguars for example there's a guy who does uh, oscar fernando gomez who drove a taxi, and so he just takes all these pictures through the window of his taxi. There's one of a car that's run up the back of a bus. There's another of just a cow on the side of the street. And it just says to you the vehicle was a way of getting around and seeing different things. Yes. And and I I go back to American Graffiti, launched the career of George Lucas and had such an incredible impact both in what it reflected, but in what it also made for it. Uh, yeah, and Harrison Ford, you know, was an early, early part of his career, and the the fifty six T Bird Thunderbird, yeah, the T Bird, the Thunderbird. Now Ford bought in another Thunderbird, you know, a, a late one. It was a failure, but it was a case, I think, of art, you know, promoting what the the real world then ultimately tried to do again. <laughs> yes. All right, I love that. You're listening to Overdrive. Now, Errol, you have a story for us. Well, David, I think one thing that was missing from that uh, photo exhibition is a photo of a flying car um, (laughs) because basically they don't exist yet. Well, but one of them is, and it's on eBay, you can get the Moller Skycar concept which I'm sure we've covered many years ago, uh, for a uh, the bargain buy it now price of a cool five million US dollars. The fine print in the ad is that it doesn't actually fly, and if you want it to fly, be prepared to pony up even more cash after the sale to get it airworthy. So uh, that's an interesting thing. I think they've basically just run out of money. Um, in other flying car news, Terrafugia, designers of the transition flying car, which is a misnomer, it's really a folding plane. It still needs a runway. Uh, it might be bought out by Chinese automaker Geely. Nobody really knows why, but maybe there's a bigger market in China for a flying car due to their incredible levels of congestion combined with a uh, rising upper class that can afford one, because apparently many of them fly around in a helicopter as it is. Geely is the people that bought Volvo, so it'll mm. be boxy but safe. I wonder whether they uh, it's a scam like a straddling bus, though, David, we talked about last week. <laughs> well, I, I, you know you're in trouble when, as is doing with Moller, is selling it on eBay, as you say. I oh, mean, yes. that's, that's hardly a... Uh, marvellous marketing exercise, isn't it? It's more, this is junk I've got in my garage. Why don't well, you buy it? Yes. Well, I mean, the, the, the pro- take it off my hands. The, the problem is Moller only, only have ever demonstrated very controlled, basically hovering, whereas at least Terra Fuga's transition is that they've got a, you know, multiple prototypes and they're going into production and they've they've flown them around as a plane and got yes. FAA approval and all that stuff. So uh, I'm still waiting, David. I'm very disappointed. Yes. No, My flying a, car is still not here. Yes. Now, Moller says they spent $150 million on the prototype, the technology to make the prototype, but but it's they're only getting $5 million bucks for it. I tell you what, it's, it's worse than driving it off the lot, isn't it? <laughs> 
the depreciation. Anyone thinking of buying one of these, just look at this resale value. Yeah, apparently getting the spare parts is just impossible. Oh, if you want to build one for parts, it's like five hundred million. Uh, Brian, uh, a little bit more history, Brian. Yeah, this is an interesting one, David. Archiving uh, is uh, in the, the the digital world is quite an interesting process. So, uh, Transport for London has uh, has been inspired by the London twenty twelve Olymp- Olympics to start properly preserving its digital records. So you, you think, well, what? But TFL's got an amazing amount of, uh, of digital information. They've got something like 29,000 staff. They've got 300 sites. They've got 150,000 boxes of physical paper records stored, you know, in off-site locations around London. And have got, apparently, this is amazing, uh, a lot of their paper archives are stored in salt mines in Cheshire. So when they started looking at the question of how they would, would preserve their records and how they would digitise them, they, uh, they considered that it was going to cost a huge amount of money or they'd have to have a whole bunch of people doing it or they'd have to put stuff up in this, the, um, the cloud. They started experimenting with a system and now decided that they've, they've chosen a team and they've chosen a company and they're going to uh, start archiving 150 years of London's history, including tube shelters, uh, Olympic transport-related material for the 1948 and the 2012 Games, a whole bunch of 3D modelling plans for station upgrades. There's an amo- amazing amount of stuff that over a period of, uh, of years will be digitised to make sure that all those records can be looked at in 50 or 60 years' time. So so do you worry, Errol, that digital records have even uh, a lower sort of life, shelf life, than paper records? What's the equivalent um, well, electronically of a salt mine? It's already a huge problem because uh, one of the problems is that digital file formats tend to change evolve and get replaced rapidly not to mention the physical media that they're stored on becomes obsolete so it actually becomes very difficult to read old documents you often have difficulty physically reading the 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 media that they're on because you can't buy a drive that will read that old disc microfiche and, 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 and then the format that that it's in on that disc is some obscure format that that is you know becoming lost to time i mean uh, the for example, you can still still buy common parts, brand new common parts for your 80s Commodore car. You know, you can still buy a brand new gasket or whatever. But good luck finding brand new parts for your old Commodore computer from the same era. Yeah, yeah. And of course, railway equipment, they have a long, long life. 150 years is not unusual for, mm. for um, planning for a major piece of infrastructure. And so having the data that allows you to understand the planning or the design or even how to repair something that may be 50, 60, 100 years old is going to be pretty tricky. Now, I, at one point, did a whole lot of backups on 2.5-inch discs, sort of floppy disks, and, of course, after about a year, when I tried to read them, they they were all corrupted. Um, and oh. so, yeah, I mean that. In addition to that problem of that you spoke about, Errol, of formats, there's just the longevity. Hmm. How long yeah, do DVDs yeah. last? Yeah. yeah, how do you look after this stuff? Because 
the idea of this is you then destroy the physical records and and it could be things like linen plans do you remember them david where your final sort of design or plan would be drawn on linen rather than paper for this reason to to keep something long-lived and editable but yeah it's it's a fascinating mm. risk that this 150 years of uh, of history and heritage may be lost I love the idea, though. Uh, many, many years ago, I went to UCLA in uh, Los Angeles, and they were starting to digitise the street system from various eras with the notion that you might well be able to say, what was it like to drive down you know, such and such a street in 1948? And you could drive down and you could see where the buildings were. You could see that. It was a wonderful ideal, but you're quite right that it, it takes some practical realities of having to manage such a huge amount of data. The other thing, uh, we were talking microfish, you know, wasn't that the great way of storing stuff uh, some time ago? Uh, whereas now, of course, it's really archaic to think about it, let alone how are you going to formalise a process to get the data off that into digital form? Yeah, I've, I mean, there's no a idea. real risk that you, you go down dead ends without knowing that you're going down a dead end. Hmm. The other point I do like is that a lot of this came out of, in the UK, out of the 2012 Olympics, that there was, in fact, a legacy from those Olympics. The thing that Sydney never did, even in its own transport system particularly well, it, it put in some railways, but they weren't really very useful in a broader context. But, you know, a, a city that does well out of the Olympics has a good legacy. This now also has a legacy of history. So I, I think that's positive, even if it's got some hurdles. Errol, you've got a, a story for us. Well, David, Tesla Motors has announced in its usual fashion, a casual tweet by its CEO, that it will be showing an electric semi-truck in September this year. And wait for it, an electric pickup truck in 18 to 24 months. So big news from Elon Musk there for all the people that are just desperate to replace their F-150 pickup with something with batteries. When's his station wagon coming out, Errol? That's all I want. All I want is a station wagon. Something. See, we talked about this the other week, didn't we, about how you know Elon Musk's designs are not radical enough. You know, they're still a vehicle, and, and when they've removed the grill, it just looks weird now. And they, they can have an opportunity to do something different. But, you know, the ute, they're sort of – the ute just looks like a Ford F-150, doesn't it? Modernised. Yeah. Why aren't they doing something yeah. different? Uh, but with the truck, the, the fact that you just said there, Brian, is that an electric motor doesn't need such cooling, so it doesn't need a radiator. And that has made for the potential for much more aerodynamic trucks. If you have a look at a modern truck these days, per Kenworths and that, they're the most un-aerodynamic thing you could possibly imagine. They're dominated by this huge big radiator at the front. Whereas if you can get rid of that, you can go for a, a, a droopy nose. Now, you look at a lot of cars these days, even petrol cars, which need radiators, they have droopy noses. I think that's both important for aerodynamics but also for pedestrian safety. But th that it drops down a bit to the Maserati is an extreme example. That 
that might well be something that the different power source of the future, uh, namely electric vehicles, gives us a chance to change the design. Yes, yeah, yeah which I, I'm, I guess maybe they're taking baby steps and they don't want to scare the horses or the market's not ready yet or <laughs> yes. something. But, but yeah, uh, it just strikes me there's a mix of irritating innovation in that most of their kind of vehicles that have uh, their passenger cars have gullwing doors which you know i I find incredibly irritating it means you can't really have roof racks on the car you can't you know they're difficult to open in certain conditions and and they still haven't done the kind of the classic family you know flexible vehicle that can carry a bunch of kids it can carry luggage it can carry other things but going to a pickup or you know something like that i think just why why are they doing this it's interesting though that the the pickup truck is in a couple of years time but the semi trailer is coming out this year so at least they've sort of decided that there might actually be a bigger market for that yeah and a bigger impact too, I think. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. Well, the, 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 there was a, a, another story that came out around the same time as this, is that from the International Energy Agency, pointing out the sort of you know inconvenient matter of just how little effort anyone's putting into making clean trucks. Um, there's yep. four, forty countries with passenger car efficiency regulations, but only four for trucks. <laughs> and uh, by their calculation, trucking accounts for at least one-fifth of global oil demand and about a third of global emissions. Ouch. From the transport sector, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. uh, Look, uh, there's no question that a a truck in many ways could benefit from the low-down torque of an electric motor. motor, Absolutely. Mm. I I was talking about this the other day with, uh, you know, France saying that they're going to stop having petrol, new petrol cars by the year 2040. By then, it could all be over anyway. But mm. the point is, someone said to me, oh, well, what about tractors and needing diesel? Well, actually, uh, the low-down torque of an electric motor, I would think, would suit a tractor particularly well. Now, carrying batteries might be a problem, so hydrogen might be the answer there. Hydrogen cars are electric cars that just get their power from converting hydrogen to water rather than carrying a big battery around. So the the potential is enormous, and you know, I think we will adapt in, in terms of doing that. And, and why shouldn't we? You know, refrigeration in trucks is a huge cost. Mm. Yeah. You know, and and there there have been efforts at making far more efficient refrigerant systems for trucks, so that we're not wasting as much energy. Agree. All right, gentlemen, that's uh, lovely. I think we've done all the stories for this week, and uh, I, as always, I appreciate your time. Thank no, you. No worries. Thanks, David. David. Brian Smith and Errol Smith, and we have been talking some quirky news. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Brian Smith, Errol Smith, David Campbell and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments of each of the features by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.